The message is entitled, Abiding in Christ and Bearing Fruit. As you will see in just a moment, it's really not my title, it comes from the text itself. As we have been going through the Gospel according to John and have gone through the first 14 chapters, we now come to chapter 15, and we are reminded that the Lord has been encouraging His disciples. He's down to 11 apostles at this stage. But he has encouraging, been encouraging them because his time on this earth is limited. He is returning to the Father from which he came. Remember, Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. He is God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. He was with the Father from eternity past. And yet, out of his love, came into this world and took on himself that which was not common to him, flesh and blood. Maintaining himself as fully God, fully man, came for the purpose of going to the cross of Calvary to satisfy, while we talk about our salvation, his real purpose was to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God in a payment for sin and his extent of love to us. But he was returning to him. He is actually at this stage, when we come to chapter 15, only hours away from that moment. Hours in which he will suffer. Not just physically, but the burden of paying that penalty in his death. Remember that he was in the upper room with his apostles, and he was instructing them and encouraging them and preparing them for the things that would come. At this stage, Judas Iscariot had left. That's important to the text that's before us. He had left them. He had been on his way to finalize the betrayal of the one who had been instructing him for over three years. He had been enjoying the presence and the teachings of Jesus Christ, seeing the miracles and the evidence of who he was, but he had deserted. And now, at this time, if you look at chapter 14, verse 31, as a reminder of where we left, Jesus Christ, at the end of that passage, said, Get up and let us go from here. And I believe, as I've explained it already, he has now left the upper room and is on his way to go down through the Kidron Valley eventually to Gethsemane, back into the city, and then to the cross of Calvary. And by the way, I should not fail to say, and will be resurrected from the grave. But he's on his way, and he's moving, and as he's moving forth from the room and going there, it is remarkable to me that he is still teaching. He is still instructing If any of us were on by comparison, and it's really not a true comparison, but in prison on death's roll, which uh, is very rare today in this state now, in this government, in this country. But if we were in a situation where we're on our way to death row, I don't think we'd be looking for ways to teach other people. We'd be looking and concentrating on our own fate and what's coming before us. But we find Christ, again, centered on the will of the Father 
And he's still taking the time along the way to instruct and to teach his disciples. And the verses that are before us, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, are amazing. And because of time, I will not get through all of the passage today, but I want to prepare you because I believe we are dealing with a very key passage of Scripture. Why? I believe it is the key to life with Christ. I believe it is a key passage, personally, to Christian living. How we are to live the Christian life. There are many professing faith in Christ today and who claim to be living the Christian life today. But let me summarize it so I don't leave you hanging today and we will work with the depth of it today and over the weeks to come. You will see that the passage is clearly saying that even the Christian life, even the life of a disciple, is not about doing It is about abiding. It is about abiding in Him. It is about being attached, belonging to Him. It's not about doing. And might I remind us, as I emphasize it in our reading, so we don't leave here today without that thought. And by the way, I would encourage you, knowing where we're studying, to take some time on your own this week and in the coming weeks to read the first 25 verses of this passage so you know it well. But here we are reminded that right in the heart of it, without him, he said, we can do how much? Nothing. We can not only not be in Christ without him, but we can also do nothing without abiding in him. The whole emphasis on verses 1 through 25, as I will comment in a minute, I believe, is on these two points, abiding and fruit-bearing. And I say that to you because the word of the use, meno, which is the word to abide, is found, I want you to see it here, in verse 4, you'll notice abide in me. You'll notice verse 4, uh, at the end, unless it abides in the vine. And verse 4 again, at the end, you abide in me. Verse 5. He who abides. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide. Verse 7. If you abide in me. In my words, abide in you. Verse 9. I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10. You will abide in my love. And it actually appears again, though not in English, in verse 11. My joy may be in you or abide in you. Down to verse 16. He says that your fruit would remain or abide. It is over and over. Kapos, the word used for fruit, is found in verse 2. Not bear fruit. The end of the verse. That bears fruit. Verse 4. In the middle there again. It abides in the vine. And, but before that it says, unless it abides in me, what happens? You cannot bear fruit. We move down. 
In verse 5 again, he wants us to bear much fruit. You get down to verse 8, and we find that you bear much fruit. Verse 16, he did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? Purpose, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit. I think I've emphasized it enough. You get the point. If God is talking about abiding and he's talking about fruit that many times, I had best understand what he's saying. Especially if I cannot bear the fruit unless I'm abiding in him. And so it is very, very important to the passage, and it's very, very important to the Christian life and our understanding of this passage. In order to teach his disciples, he's using a metaphor here that we know of in Scripture and we've heard about it. It's the concept of the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And I believe, as I've already said to you, the unit of it, and most stop, the furthest they take it that I've seen is verse 17. But I believe the whole unit goes from verse 1 all the way through verse 25. They know already because of the teaching, this is context now, that Jesus Christ is going to use them. They know that they are to carry on his work when he goes back to the Father. He's instructed them in that. He has told them that they will have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He has told them recently in our study that they will have the peace of God, and I've explained that to you. He has shown them recently in our last message that he wanted to give them the assurance that Jesus Christ is the victor, will be the victor over Satan, and is in the victor in every situation. But the question then arises, how do they carry out the work of Christ, though God, since God's going to use them? Or, by extension, because it does extend to us, as we will see, How are we to conduct the work of God as he uses us? How are we to live the Christian life? And I believe the instruction in this chapter can be broken down into three areas as far as our relationship. Specifically, it was the disciples, the the 11 apostles, if you want to really be specific. But as I said, it applies by extension to all believers. And what is it? He's showing them their relationship, first of all, to Christ in verses 1 through 8. This is the outline of what we will study. He is showing us in verses 1 through 8 of this chapter how we ought to have a relationship to Christ, who is, by the way, and I will expand on this this morning, the true vine, verse 1. And then our relationship to other believers is found in verses 9 through 16. And that is, if you look at verse 12 for just a second, give it to you right in the beginning, this is my commandment, that you love one another. And you'll notice I gave you some of the verses. He's still talking about fruit, and he's still talking about abiding as he continues on in that passage. And then when you get to verse 17, from that verse all the way down to verse 25, he then gives his disciples instruction of how they are to relate or will relate to the world. If you look at just verse 18, it says, if the world hates you. And so I believe what you have in chapter 15 is an instruction from Jesus Christ as he continues, as he's moving down to the Kidron Valley, 
His instruction to his disciples now, since they're to carry on, how they ought to relate, first of all, to him, because that's essential, and then how they ought to relate to one another, and then he will carry it on to basically how they will relate to the world, and that's not a pretty picture that he will have to say. This morning we will start and begin our concentration on the first point, and that is the relationship of the disciples to Christ, uh, the relationship, if you will, by believers to Jesus Christ. So let's take a look and start this morning with the metaphor. The metaphor is found in verses 1 to 3. You can look at it. I will expand on some of the words in a moment. But as you look at the verses, he's related to, relating to a vineyard, viticulture. It is something that for most of us probably in this room is not something that we are familiar with. We don't spend a lot of time with that today. There aren't many farms and certainly vineyards in this area. You go to California and you might find quite a few vineyards that are there, are in the Middle East. So it's not that familiar to us, but to the nation of Israel and to the disciples of Jesus Christ, viticulture or vineyards were very, very familiar to them. There is much speaking in the Old Testament of vines and olive trees in grapes, we find that as far back, even specifically identified in the book of Deuteronomy. You will recall that when Israel was delivered and they were to move toward the promised land and they sent the spies out, what were they carrying between them on a pole? Anybody remember? Grapes. They were carrying the fruits of the vineyards. So it was very, very familiar to them. Our response of reading this morning was just to give you another one, that, because of different context there, another situation where he used the vineyard because this is something they were familiar with. In chapter 20 of Matthew, I didn't turn there and I won't turn there, but I'll give you it as a reference. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, the Lord gives them another parable regarding the vineyard, and that's where he called laborers to the field. Remember, and he paid him a certain wage, and then they complained because the ones that came in at the 11th hour are going to be paid the same. It was a vineyard that he was using in that parable. We find in the Psalms and in the prophets much mention of vines and vineyards and fruit. So when he was talking to his disciples, he knew, they knew exactly what he was referring to. But more important even to our context and to our understanding of this passage not only was Israel familiar with the concept of the vineyard, Israel was recalled by, uh, called by God as his vine. That was found, for example, in Psalm 80 from verse 7 forward, where it was symbolic, symbolically referred to when God was taking Israel out as a nation, out of bondage, he planted them as a vine. And he talks about that. I want you to turn with me, though, to something that will be important to our interpretation of this chapter. Go with me first to Isaiah, the fifth chapter. Isaiah, chapter 5. We just go in and look at the vine and the branches and sometimes fail to see the significance of what Jesus Christ is saying here. Let me summarize what we're going to see in the next three passages by this. Israel was to be the vine of God, the vineyard, the fertile field, and what we find out is they were unfaithful. They didn't stay true. 
Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I want to read them. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, <coughs> excuse me, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on Fertile Hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. All of that relates to what we have in John 15. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. But, verse 3, 2, it produced only worthless ones, wild ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have done in it? Why then I expected it to produce good grapes? Did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. Turn with, uh, I should go on, look at verse 6 and 7. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or honed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also change the clouds to rain, to rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plants. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for distress." Two more passages that I think we need to see. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll hone right in on one verse here. Verse 21. Jeremiah 2.21 Yet I planted you a choice vine a completely, watch this, faithful seed, how then you have turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine. They were not faithful. They didn't abide in the true vine. They turned from him. Go with me to Hosea chapter 10. One more passage. And again, it's foundational to what we're going to learn together. If you can find the book of Daniel, it's not that far after the book of Daniel. Hosea, chapter 10. And what I'm showing you is Israel was chosen by God, referred to as a vine, referred to as his vineyard, but they were unfaithful and did not produce what he wanted them to produce. Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Israel is a luxurious, a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars Surely now they will say, we have no king. 
For we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? All of that, and I'm just giving you portions of it to show you that when we come, we say, yeah, the vine and the branches. We refer to believers. We see the vine. We see the branches and have no concept of the historical setting that this is in. When the Lord's still teaching them, he's been instructing them about his going away and how he's going to leave these disciples now. And they are going to carry on. And how can they do the work of God? And he's doing it in a setting in which they understood about vine and branches. They understood about a vineyard. And they also had the historical background of knowing that God had set aside Israel and referred to them as a vine, referred to them as a vineyard, had planted them, and how they were unfaithful to God. They had turned away from God. They had all the privileges that God had given them. They were to be the people of God, and they were unfaithful. They didn't bear the fruit that they should have borne. Hold those things in mind over today and next week. We can only begin with the first part this morning. Let's go back to John chapter 15, and let's look at the components of the passage. The components. There are three. What are the three components? They're found in verses 1 and 2. The metaphor continues through verse 3, but we find the components in verses 1 and 2. They are the vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. And the vine dresser, by the way, simply means caretaker, the gardener. That's the word. That's what it means. And so he refers to those right away. First of all, the vine. Let's deal with that. He says... I am, notice this, the true vine. To get right to the heart of the issue today, there is only one true vine. It is Jesus Christ. He is referring to himself, and he says that he is the true vine. This is the last of the seven I am statements. For those of you who haven't been here with the study, that's very significant. Why? These are references that are referring to the deity of Jesus Christ. People do not want to be confronted with the concept of the deity of Jesus Christ, with the fact that he is God. Jesus Christ is the great I Am. And he has been saying that he is the bread of life, for example. He has told us in the 14th chapter in our context not too long ago that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come unto the Father but by me. These references of the I am, the ego a me, of the gospel according to John, is referring to the fact that Jesus Christ, yes, he came in the flesh, but he is unique. In what way is he unique? He is fully God, fully man. And you cannot believe, listen, in Jesus Christ in the biblical sense unless you understand that. People have made Jesus Christ out to be whom they want him to be. He is clearly defined in Scripture as fully God, fully man. If you don't have Jesus Christ as fully God, fully man, you don't have a Savior. Jesus Christ is truly God, and that is why we have another word in here. 
People refer to this as the vine and the branches, and I did that purposely. But if you want to be true to the text, you need to say what it says. I am the what vine? The true vine. That's important to us. Jesus Christ is saying that he is the genuine vine. He is the real vine. He is the true source, if you will. He's the true source of life. You will not find life. This passage before us in John chapter 15 is so significant. Because people today are searching for God. They don't know where to search. They're trying different religions. Some, honestly, will come in here to try Fellowship Bible Church, or they'll go to another Christian church to try that out for a while to see if that will work. And people are trying to do all kinds of things religiously and attach themselves to this or to that or to whatever. Even some will attach themselves to the name of Christ, as we'll see in this passage, in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus Christ is making it very clear as he's teaching his disciples that I am, here's who I am. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? He is the true, he is the genuine, he is the real vine. He is not a false vine. He is not a counterfeit. He is not a copy. Why? It's very significant to our context. The reason he's the true vine, and I even took the time this morning to go back, even with the limited time we had here, to go back to talk to you about Israel. Israel was unfaithful. Jesus Christ has just been teaching his disciples, as we have seen, that he has always obeyed the Father. And the evidence that he is the true vine is his obedience to all that the Father wanted him to do. He has fulfilled, as we have seen, all of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That is why we have seen in our text of study, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? If you want to see the Father, look at me. Why? Jesus Christ is the full representation, according to Colossians, of, Jesus, of God in the flesh. He is the image of the Father. As the vine, Israel failed. As the vine, the Israel's leaders failed. Their religion failed. Their people failed. And I will say to you right at the outset, because it's so important, anyone that has not come to Christ yet and you're searching to want to know God, no matter where you pursue, whether it's religion, whether it's any other area, you will never find true life because it's only found in the true vine. There have been many messiahs to this stage that have come, but they were false messiahs. Jesus Christ is the true vine. He's the true messiah. He's the true Christ. He's the only way. He's the only one sent of the Father. There is only one true vine, and it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has never failed the Father, he will never fail him. He will never fail the believer. He's the only source of life, true life that can give eternal life. And there will still be false Christ that will come after him. There is still all kinds of religion that comes after him today. And we see that around us. And people following all kinds of things. The only place you will find salvation is in the true vine. He is the true vine that is able to provide salvation. It is the last I am that he comes to. And I think it's very appropriate, by the way. 
I don't think it's any chance, if you, if you allow me to use that term, that this is the last of the I am statements. Why? The context of what Pastor Dan, I know sometimes when I review or sometimes when I go through this stuff, it's, you know, I know that, I know that, I know that. Yeah, and it needs to be drilled in. Why? He's about to leave them. He has left us, if you will, in the sense of carrying on the ministry. How are we to carry it on? The last one he leaves them is the reminder that you cannot do this ministry unless you are abiding in me. Because I am the true vine. I am the source of life. And we're going to see as we study this out, we can't produce fruit on our own. There are professing Christians, probably many of us in this room at times, that are trying to produce the fruit ourselves. It doesn't work that way. The very fact that we are abiding in Christ, He will produce the fruits. So many of us try so many things apart from Christ with our own ideas or our own efforts, and we'll see that as well. But going all the way back to salvation, He's the true vine. I need to cover the other three points just for a second. The second thing is the vine dresser. You notice this. There is only one vine dresser as well. Who is it? It's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be very technical with the name. Jesus Christ is the true vine, and my Father, that is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many people that refer to God. Who is the Father? Who is God? He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, and Jesus Christ has already taught us He is one with the Father. They are in this together. No wonder he's the fine dresser. What is that? He is the one who cares for the vineyard. He is the one who gardens, if you will, the vineyard. He is the one, as we will see, that will purge. He is the one that is going to be working in our life to get us to produce what he wants us to produce. He's the one who cares for the vineyard of Jesus Christ. And then we all know this, but just let me lay that foundation. There's also the branches. Then who are the branches? Let me not leave you hanging with that. The branches here that he's referring to are professing believers. They are disciples. There are, unlike the vine and unlike the vine dresser, there's going to be two types of branches. With the vine, there's only one true vine. With the vine dresser, there's only one true vine dresser. But with the branches, there are two types. There are those who bear fruit, and there are those who are non-fruit bearing. And in our study in the weeks to come, we're going to see what that means and who that is. But they are professing believers. The objective of the whole passage is for fruit. Let me say this to you today. First of all, if you're here today and haven't yet come to Jesus Christ, you're still searching, you want to know God, you want to truly know the God of this universe and what he's like, you will not come to know God until you come to know Jesus Christ. This celebration of the table was the preaching of the word. It was a visual demonstration of what Christ has done in dying on the cross. That one who is the true vine gave his life that we could have life. As we will see in the weeks to come, for us who are Gentiles, 
According to Romans chapter 11, He Himself has grafted us in. He's grafted us in so that we can have the life of God. It has been provided through Jesus Christ. Why? So that we would bear fruit. And here's where I want you to leave today, Christian. So we would bear fruit for Jesus Christ. We are not here for ourselves. And as we will see in the weeks to come, this, if you're not bearing fruit, you're not attached to the vine, no matter what you say. And in case you think I'm really overstepping my grounds, look at the end of verse 8. And so prove to be my disciples. There's a lot of people, remember, these things are important to context. Prior to this, there were those who were coming along and calling themselves disciples of Christ. And yet, when things got too hard, and Jesus Christ really identified who he was and what they needed to expect, they deserted him. In the immediate context, Judas Iscariot one who had been benefiting by Christ, who had been attached, if you will, in some way to the things of Christ all along, had just left them and deserted them. The purpose of bearing fruit, as we will see, has two things. One, to bring glory to the Father. And second, to identify who really is or who really are those who belong to Christ. The Christian life is about fruit-bearing, and it's about being attached and abiding in the vine. That sets a foundation for what we'll be studying. And we're going to see there's some practical things here, because it deals with purging, and it deals with trials, and it deals with tribulations and things that they will see. But let me leave you with this in light of what we have just had before us with the communion service. Jesus Christ is the true vine, and unless you are attached to him, you have no life. And unless you're attached to him, you will bear no fruit. No matter what you're trying. No matter what I'm trying to do. And that God's design for the branches is to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. It's not to sit in a pew. It's not to live in this world and get everything out of this world that I can get. It's interesting, Pastor Chris referred to the lottery. Very rarely will you hear that term from this pulpit. But he did refer to it. You know what? You can win the lottery and spend it all your life, and if that's all you have, you have nothing. It's eternal values that count. And when you face death, when death is on your doorstep, none of that will matter. God has given you a visual aid in the last week of what moments of time can change. Of how houses, vineyards, towns, and people can be removed in seconds 
how the structures of man, the economy of man, and the planning of man means little. And I'm going to this because we're near the end of the message and I don't want you to leave without this. What does your life mean for eternity? If you don't belong to Christ, it means nothing. If you're not abiding in Him as a believer, and to be a believer you, need to be, you will be abiding in Him as we'll see. It's producing nothing. How much fruit for eternity is God producing in your life? Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we have not done justice to this passage that's before us yet, but as we walk into this passage in which your Son continues to teach and instruct the disciples who will carry on the ministry, and we as well, God, you've given us this time and this generation and this period of history to be vessels for the Master's use. But I pray, Father, and ask that first of all you'd open up the understanding of anyone that might be here that has not yet trusted in Christ. That they might see that the true vine is Jesus Christ. There is no other. That Jesus Christ is the one that satisfied the penalty for sin. That true repentance is required. We cannot do anything of our own to obtain eternal life, satisfaction with God. All of our efforts leave us hanging, leave us unsure. But the work of Jesus Christ is sure. The work of the true vine is the one that provides life. For those of us, Father, that are here that profess faith in Christ, I pray that we'd look at this passage closely and we'd look at our own lives to see what you're able to be producing in our lives, to be honest with ourselves and to ask us, with that profession, am I abiding in Christ? Is his word abiding in me? And that, Father, as we do, we pray that you would produce the fruit that will bring glory to the Father and will give us the evidence of knowing that we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.